This morning we're continuing our Others First sermon series. And uh, since we've stopped printing bulletins, I have not had to make sermon titles. But if I were to give this sermon a title, it would be Others First, Even When It Hurts. Others First, Even When It Hurts. Last week we studied the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, one of the things that we observed is that if you're going to live the Others First life, that inevitably is going to put you in conflict with some of the things that we cherish. Uh, we have a, a love of money uh, that putting others first is going to put us in conflict with. Uh, we have a love of our convenience and our ease and our, our time. We cherish that. And putting others first is going to inevitably confront that. Jesus said, you cannot have two masters. You're going to end up loving one and despising the other. You, you have to choose who's your master. So if we're going to put others first, if we're going to love God and love our neighbors, we are on a collision course with those things that, that we do cherish. Our Three Musketeers bars, we're, we're on a collision course. Our, our love of money, our love of our schedule and a life of ease and convenience. We can't have two masters. It's hard. There's a reason that they didn't want to give the three musketeer away. It's not easy. And Jesus didn't say it would be easy. But this is what I, I know. If we wait for it to be convenient to put others first, if we wait for it to be easy, we're going to just do a whole lot of waiting. And there's going to be opportunities that are going to pass us right by because we're, we're waiting for this perfect condition for us to put someone else first. Others first, even when it hurts, join me for the, uh, as we pray for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Lord, uh, again, we thank you and praise you that you, you are a God who puts others first. And we thank you that uh, you have demonstrated that in the greatest gift, the gift of your son, the sacrifice for our sins. Lord, we pray that you would quicken us with your word. We pray that you would transform our hearts, that you would renew our minds. We pray this in the power of your name. Amen. We're going to look at several scriptures this morning, but our launch pad is going to be James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. James chapter 2, verse 14 to 17. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, if not, it will be on the screen above. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The other's first life is not an elective for the, the National Honor Society of Christians. The other's first life is not extra credit for overachieving disciples. The other's first life is quite simply the Christian life. 
to follow Christ, Jesus said, follow me, and where he intends to take us is others first. And James couldn't pose the question any more plainly. What good is it if a man or a woman claims to have faith but has no deeds? That is not supposed to be a trick question. What good is it? Somebody claims to have faith, but they have no deeds. What good is it for the priest to come up, and in God's providence, he comes upon the man on the side of the road, and instead of stopping to take care of him, passes by, maybe he gives him a blessing as he goes by. What good is it for the man on the side of the road? What good is it for the one who's hungry if we feel bad for them, and we sympathize with them? And we extend to them our warm thoughts and well wishes. But don't do anything in our power to provide something for them to eat. What good is it for them? Again, it's not a trick question. It's no good. It does them absolutely no good. And so James poses this question that's supposed to be pretty obvious. What good is it? It's no good. And then it's like he anticipates where our mind is going to go next. Do you remember last week with the parable of the Good Samaritan, the expert in the law stood up, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, what does the law say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Problem solved. Do this and live. And then what did the expert in the law do? He asked another question. It was really clear, but it wasn't a matter of really wanting to know what to do. He, he wanted to cloud things up. And so James is kind of anticipating where our minds are going to go because it's crystal clear what he's saying. We've got to help those. When it's in our power to do so, that's what faith does. But where we go to in our minds is, is this. Can I still go to heaven? Can I still be saved if, if I don't do that? Like if I have faith, but I don't stop when it's in my power to do so and help, can I still be saved? Well, James, James asked the question for us, can such faith save him? Essentially, the question before us is whether or not following Christ and leading an other's first life, is it an elective or a required course? Do I still get my diploma if I don't do the other's first thing? It's actually embarrassing that, that we ask that question, but we do. So here, here's the question James poses for us. Can such, and I'm going to insert a couple adjectives here, can such impotent, useless faith save a person? Well, he goes on and he answers his own question just a verse or two later. Faith, by itself, if not accompanied with action, is dead. Again, it's pretty blunt. Faith, if not accompanied by action, is dead. And what I'm calling action in this sermon series is others first. If there is no action, if there's no sign of, of a servant's heart and wanting to, to put others First, to love your neighbor because you love God, then you've got to question, is there really faith? Is there genuine faith? A me-first faith is just not much of a faith. So this, this call to others first, 
We see it all over in the life of Jesus. But it didn't start with Jesus. We can go back to the, to the very beginning and see that God has put this, this call on his people all the way back to Abraham. Remember the story in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel happens and, and God separates community, confuses their language, and, and causes humanity to scatter across the, the globe. And then in Genesis 12, God picks a man. And begins to form a people, a community, says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. And right away in Genesis 12, God kind of lays out what the kind of the, the road map is. He says this, I'm going to make your name great. And I am going to bless you. I'll make your name great. I'll make you into a great nation. And then he adds this little, this little added detail. And you will be a blessing. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. So what we know is that as children of God, through Jesus Christ, we are spiritual descendants of Abraham. And so the things that God said to Abraham, he says to us, he says, I'm going to bless you, and he has, and he does, and I'm going to use you to be a blessing to others. So this other's first life, is one that recognized that we have been so incredibly blessed. And it's helpful to just stop every once in a while and think how blessed we are. We've been chosen. And it's not because we are just so wonderful. God has chosen us on his own initiative. We are loved. We are forgiven. God walks with us. God provides us for us. God sustains us. God nourishes us. He gives us a hope. He gives us a future. The psalmist is right. Our cups runneth over. And it runs over with this blessing. The cost for us to, to bless others is not too great a cost when we consider how much we have been blessed. I'll bless you, God says, and I'm going to use you to bless this world that I love so much. I'm going to bless you, and when you pass by that half-dead person on the side of the road, I'm going to use you to bless that person. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to put in you the light of the knowledge of my son, Jesus Christ, and then I'm going to use you as my flashlight in this world to shine my love to this world. The scriptures are just filled with examples of where God's people have been in hard circumstances, difficult circumstances, and yet they still live the other's first life. And so I'm, I'm going to point to two different examples. One is regarding the community, Israel, and another is ex regarding a few people. So Israel, they get to the promised land, finally, and they've got a home, and it's wonderful, and they've got the, the 12 tribes, and, and the years pass by, and Israel is invaded by a powerful army. And they are carried off, taken away from their home, into exile, into Babylon. Well, there's some prophets who are telling them, don't worry, God's going to bring you back home, you're only going to be here a short while, just hunker down and God's going to bring you back. And God says to Jeremiah, that's not right. I want you to write to my people and tell them you're going to be there for actually 70 years. And so while you're there, this is what I want you to do. I want you to plant gardens and build houses and, and, and marry 
And, and I want you, he writes this in verse 7 of Jeremiah 29, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Pray to the Lord for Babylon. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Even in this foreign land, in the hands of their captors, even when it hurts, God is saying, I want you to be a blessing. If there were ever a time for them to jettison this call to others first, this was it. I mean, they are in a pagan land. They are, are now captives. They've been ripped away from their home. And, and God says, be a blessing. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. A lot of us know Jeremiah 29 because our favorite verse is just a couple ver verses later. Jeremiah 29, 11. Some of you could quote it. For I know the plans I have for you. Declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, plans to to give you a hope in the future. In other words, I, I'm I haven't stopped blessing you. Your cup's gonna still run over. I'm gonna take care of you. I'm gonna prosper you. Now you be a blessing. Did you notice the detail that God said I carried you into exile? That's a tough one. Like this is all happening in 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 my sovereign plan. I've, I've got a plan here. So there's an example of a community. I love this example of a couple individuals. It comes from Acts chapter 16. We're talking about Paul and Silas. So Paul and Silas are in Philippi and they're, they're ministering to people and they're sharing the good news and the town is in an uproar because they're bringing some ideas that are, are just strange concepts. And so they actually are brought in before the magistrates and they're arrested, they're dragged before the magistrates, and they're accused of these strange customs that they're advocating, of throwing the town in an uproar. The magistrates apparently get a little nervous. And so they give the order to have them stripped of their clothes and beaten. And then it says they were severely flogged. So they're whipped, and in the, 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 the strands of the whip are shards of glass and stone. So you can imagine the condition of Paul and Silas. Stripped, beaten, severely flogged, thrown in prison. If you know the story, you know what they do. They, they begin to worship. They begin to sing hymns to, to God. And at about midnight, God causes this great earthquake to happen. All the prison doors open and chains, shackles, come off their wrists and their feet. I mean, this is a... a yellow brick road for a jailhouse break. And I imagine that's Paul and Silas's first instinct, we're out of here. God's opened the door for us. But then it occurs to them, if we leave, we know what's going to happen to that, that jailer who's been listening to us, by the way, sing hymns all day long. We know that if we leave, he's a dead man. Because he's in charge of making sure that, that we stay here. And if, and if we're gone... The authorities will kill him. And so they actually, unshackled, prison doors open, they sit back down in their cells. The prison guard gets up, confused with all of the, the craziness going on, sees the prison doors open, immediately understands what's about to happen to him because, of course, the prisoners are gone. And so he grabs his sword and he's about to, to run it through himself when Paul shouts out loud, don't harm yourself. We're still here. 
I mean, again, if ever there was a time to jettison the other's first life, that was it. Severely beaten, stripped, humiliated, flogged, imprisoned falsely. And now they have this, this easy escape, and yet they choose to, to live the other's first life, and they stay in their cell. Well, look at how the story plays out. The man is so floored. He's never experienced a love like this before. And he goes before them. They're in prison. They're captive. And he says to them, what must I do to be saved? He recognizes I'm really the prisoner here. I'm the, I'm the captive. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The answer is simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. You and your family. And so he takes them in the middle of the night to his family. They preach the gospel to his household. The whole household gets baptized. Did Paul and Silas know when they decided to stay in their prison cells that it would lead to the salvation of the prison guard? Did they know that it would lead to the salvation of the entire household? Of course not. They just did the next right thing. They did the next thing that they knew God would want them to do. This I know, if we wait for it to be easy, if we wait for it to be convenient, there's a lot of stories that won't get told. There's a lot of those jailer stories. God wants to, to use us to be a light, and yes, it's not always going to be convenient, and it's going to cost us something. But that's what makes it so special. I think of when, when Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 12, he said this, I urge you. In view of God's mercy, in view of the incredible blessings of God, I urge you to, to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. There's a cost. And you have been blessed richly. Now give your life as a sacrifice. This is the way you worship. This is your spiritual act of worship. This morning we have the opportunity to come to the table and I love that that has fallen in line with this sermon because there is no greater demonstration of others first than what Jesus has done for us. And come with me to the cross. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And there at the foot of the cross is a religious official. And the scripture says he sneered at him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ. Could Jesus have saved himself? I mean, God sent an earthquake that opened prison doors and set shackles free. I think it would have been nothing for the nails to come out of his wrists and his feet. He could have called a legion of angels to come to his rescue. But Jesus chose to stay on that cross. He chose to, to die in our place. Jesus led the other's first life. And now he says to us, I, I've blessed you. And I call you to, to be a blessing.